Welcome to the College Baseball Recruiting 101 podcast brought to you by Keep Playing Baseball. This is your host, Ethan Gavon, coming to you from Sacramento, California. Keep Playing Baseball is a registered 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping every high school baseball player navigate the recruiting process and play college baseball. At Keep Playing Baseball, we don't think money should dictate college baseball opportunity, and all our resources, including this podcast, are 100% free. No signups, no fees, no strings attached. We use the College Baseball Recruiting 101 podcast in many different ways, but the main point is to get you the information you need to keep playing baseball. We appreciate you tuning in to the College Baseball Recruiting 101 podcast, the best source of recruiting information on the go. What's up, guys? Welcome to the latest episode of the College Baseball Recruiting 101 podcast by Keep Playing Baseball. Pretty fired up to welcome driveline baseball employee and minor leaguer Max Dudo to the podcast today. Dudo spent three seasons playing college ball at Cal Berkeley, where I was lucky enough to coach him for a season in the Pac-12. He finished his career off at NAIA Menlo College after a brief pit stop at D2 Cal State East Bay. Dudo put an exclamation point on his college career, hitting 13 bombs for Menlo as a senior before being drafted 266th overall as a ninth-round pick by the Chicago White Sox. Max, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks, E. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. So you're at the forefront of baseball development, working at Driveline Baseball as a hitting instructor. Definitely want to pick your brain about that and the great work that you guys are doing there. But why don't you just start off by giving us a little background? You know, why don't you tell us a little bit about your baseball career and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, sure. So um started my college career at, at Cal Berkeley and played three years there. I uh, ended up transferring to um, Cal State East Bay and then Menlo College for my last year. That's a, when I was able to meet uh, Jason Ochart, who's director at hitting at Driveline. I um, was able to have a pretty good season uh, my last year at Menlo and uh, was drafted by the White Sox in the ninth round in 2016. Played two years with them and uh, currently, uh, you know, looking for a job right now. As you know, we're kind of targeted to a, a high school audience, guys that are looking to play at the next level. So I want you to take it back to before your college days. So think back to high school. How did you know you wanted to play college baseball? And then what were some of your college baseball goals? Uh, you know, I think I knew I wanted to play college baseball, you know, from Little League, uh, you know, up through high school. You know, I didn't know I would be able to have the chance to play at the level, you know, I got to play at till probably about like my, you know, sophomore, junior year when, you know, started getting some offers and started, you know, doing the showcase circuit uh, and all that stuff. Um, so I was able to, you know, commit to Cal pretty early in my high school career. And, you know, the goal was to, you know, play in the Pac-12, try and, try and dominate college baseball and uh, and get drafted from there. Obviously, there's going to be some hiccups along the way, which I experienced uh, quite a bit. But, um, you know, my high school career was, was pretty straightforward. I was pretty fortunate um, to have the recruiting process be not as difficult for me. Gotcha. So it seems like it kind of came to you a little bit. But was there anything that you did? to attack the recruiting process? Did you have 
kind of a plan laid out for yourself that that led to some of the success that you had in finding Cal at an early age? Um, yeah, you know, I, I was fortunate to have um, a very well-respected travel coach in the Bay Area, Eric Johnson. Um, he gave me some good advice um, on colleges and is well-connected um, in that area. So, you know, I was sending emails uh, out to schools, you know, probably beginning of sophomore year, um, started going to showcases and, and tournaments um, like Arizona Fall Classic, um, you know, Perfect Game National showcase stuff like that um and just try to expose myself as much as i can um, i think i had a pretty good idea i wanted to stay on the west coast um so i kind of targeted those schools um you know luckily it was, it was able to happen for me gotcha and so you have you know there's a lot of good schools obviously close to where you grew up you started getting interest early is there anything you would change kind of looking back at the way you went through that process you know you said you started your sophomore year would you have waited a little bit longer would you have done anything different um I yeah I think I think I think bottom line I probably would have done a lot of things different um you know I think I started thinking about it you know probably around the right time uh you know mom and dad were, were harping on me quite a bit to uh you know to have a plan and, and try to achieve the goal of playing big time college baseball right but um I think what I've, I've done over, you know, is probably taking a closer look at, um, you know, each school and what type of fit it was for me, um, both academically and, um, you know, player development wise. Um, I think I could have done, done a better job of understanding my strengths and weaknesses and kind of who I was as a person, you know, personality and, and baseball player mm-hmm. and try to pick a school that I thought, you know, cared about my development a little bit more than, uh, you know, just maybe winning or like the coaches trying to trying to keep their jobs. Um, definitely uh, focus more on the development side. And obviously, you've kind of come full circle in terms of doing that now with the work that you're doing. Um, that's that's good stuff. So, how did you end up choosing Cal? You're going through this process, and what was kind of the the thing that made you decide, okay, I'm I'm going to go be a Cal Bear? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think. You know, for for good players in the Bay Area, I think Cal should be, you know, a no-brainer decision for them just because of the quality of the academics. You know, the chance of playing the Pac-12, um, you know, sometimes doesn't work out that way. A lot of guys in the Bay Area choose to leave. But for me, I think, you know, both my parents were, are Cal grads. Um, so I was kind of a Bear fan growing up. Um, and, you know, I just kind of had the idea that that's where I wanted to go. I didn't really see myself going anywhere else. Um, so that's kind of why, why I chose Cal. And so you get to Cal, I was there your freshman year. What are some of the things that surprised you about playing college baseball at the D level, especially in that first year, the first two years where you're transitioning up to a a much higher level of play? I, I, I think for me personally, like things, things weren't, uh, kind of came easier to me, you know, in practice and in the fall, um, and once, you know, we started game time, I think the intensity of the competition and kind of like, you know, the every man for himself kind of mentality, you know, I probably wasn't quite ready for. And just being able to deal with fa- failure and still be able to play in that intense, you know, competition level. Um, it's something that guys have to be prepared for. And I don't think I did a, a real great job of that. Yeah, unpack that a little bit, man. What would you have done differently in terms of the preparation and what could a guy who's maybe, you know, following a similar path 
to what you did? How can they better prepare? Um, I think I think number one, and this is kind of a theme I I touch on with a lot of the guys who work at the drive line is like is knowing yourself and and having a plan. Um, I think things came a little bit too easy for me in high school and leading up to that first season. Um, I never really had, you know, a plan for my development. I really knew what I was good and bad at. So when I struggled, like there was, there was nowhere to reach, like nothing I could really, uh, you know, go back to for when I struggled and something that got me on track. Um, so I, I think I, I just kind of lacked a, a plan for, um, for failure and getting back to being successful. How about on the academic side? You know, Cal's obviously a very academic school. How did you find the balance between the coursework and the baseball workload while you were there? And what did you do in order to, to maintain the appropriate balance and do well in school? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. It's something that's, um, you know, based on the individual for sure. Um, I think for me, like, you know, life was just kind of school and baseball. I didn't do uh, much else. Um, also, I wish I had the foresight to, you know, study more things that I'm using now in my job at Driveline. Um, so, I mean, you know, for high school kids, I would recommend, uh, you know, take, taking that side seriously and find, you know, a place where that has a major that you're really interested in studying and, and be able to attack that. And like I said, you know, some things are you're going to have to sacrifice some things to balance school and baseball. And it might just be those two things for a while until you can figure it out. You know, you hear a lot of coaches and a lot of players talk about baseball and school being priorities 1A and 1B, and feel free to switch those whichever way you want, right? But those are, you know, is it fair to say that those are pretty much, if you want to be good at both of those things, those have to be your primary focus at a level like the Pac-12? Um, I, I would think so, especially if you're going to, you know, a school like where academics is your focus and like it's a good school like Cal is. You know, finding that balance is, is quite difficult. And I, you know, I think probably at first you might have to just do school and baseball and you know, social life might have to take a back seat um, until you find that balance. But again, you know, it's all, all in the individual way you can handle and what you're used to. Um, I think for me, you know, I don't, I don't exactly have the the foresight and maturity to balance all of those things um, at 18, 19 years old. Right. Um, so I think, you know, that, that theme of, you know, baseball in school comes first is definitely something that, that holds some truth. You know, you mentioned it a couple of times, so Cal wasn't your last stop. You ended up leaving Cal after three years. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about the transfer process and how you ended up at Cal State East Bay next? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the transfer process is quite difficult. And, you know, if you're thinking of doing it, I would recommend getting as much guidance as possible and knowing all the ins and outs of the rules. Um, I think Cal did a pretty good job of helping me with that process and I was able to transfer over pretty smoothly mm-hmm. um and you know something that me and the coaches just decided upon like that it just wasn't quite working out for both of us and that um you know I still have the opportunity to play pro baseball and make that dream more of a reality it's probably time for me to switch over and so where what was your first step once you decided that you're going to leave Cal what where did you look what did you end up doing did you start reaching out to coaches or how did that process play out? Yeah, that uh, for me, I also got got pretty lucky there too. I met Bob Ralston. Um, uh, he was the coach at Cal State East Bay at the time. Um, 
the, he was a great guy and, and, and reached out to me and, uh, you know, really wanted me to come over to East Bay, helped him turn that program around. Um, I think he's a coach uh, over at Clayton Valley High School now. Um, can't, can't recommend him enough, by the way. Um, but I kind of got lucky um, getting over there and he reached out and was really supportive in that. And I decided I wanted to go with him just because, um, because of his support and just he, he seemed like he cared about me quite a bit. Okay, so you end up over there at East Bay, and that didn't quite go as planned. What happened there? Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, you know, at the time, it was uh, something that kind of crushed me. I thought baseball career was kind of over. But kind of going back to getting as much guidance and staying on the transfer um, and graduation process as much as you can, you know, I ended up not taking enough units towards my graduation. So, like, you have to take a certain amount of units uh, – towards your major and that's like counts towards graduation and uh during that whole transfer process you know i thought my major was something else um and i didn't take enough classes towards that um so i ended up getting a 3.8 grade point average over that time but didn't pass enough units and was therefore ineligible okay so that so you spent a semester there and then realized right before the season that you weren't eligible to play yeah Yep, counselor came up to the coaches during practice and just basically told me I was ineligible. So I'm sure that, you know, as as a player with professional aspirations, a really good player that blindsided you and, and put you in a really tough spot. So how did you deal with that and what happened next? Yeah, I mean, we, we just kind of went over things, tried to deal with that process and try to get me reinstated at East Bay. Fortunately, it didn't happen. And, you know, Stroke of luck, really. We played Menlo in a preseason scrimmage. And again, why I love Bob Ralston so much, he reached out to um, Jake McKinley, the Men, uh, Menlo coach at the time. And uh, they were able to get me over there within a week. Wow. So quick transition. And this is at the beginning of the season. And so you basically just traded uniforms and started playing for Menlo? Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of how it went down. So you kind of bounced around and you got to see both the good and bad sides of, of the transfer process. Um, and I think that's a really good point that you bring up for players. It's not only about the quality of your work. You know, you said you were a high achieving student. You had the right number of transfer uh, units, total units. But again, it has to do with making progress towards your degree. I think there's a huge lesson for people who are listening out there to learn that just like you said, the transfer process isn't always as straightforward as it seems, and you really have to do your homework. So, you know, what did you learn from transferring twice that you could kind of pass along in addition to just, you know, general knowledge about what you need to do? Um, I think it's just what you said. You got you got to stay on top of everything. Um, you have to go through every email that your counselor sends you. You have to meet with your counselor, you know, at least once once a week or every other week to make sure you're on track. Um, and it's just like, you know, if, uh, just taking ownership of your education um, and, and that whole process. I don't think I did a great job of just like, you know, taking care of the small details as like anyone who goes to college finds out there's a lot of paperwork involved. Um, and like, obviously there's a lot going on at the time. So I was worried about school, like actually doing my schoolwork in baseball and just kind of left the little details aside. Unfortunately, right. you can't do that. You'll you'll get burned sometimes. I had to learn that lesson the hard way for sure. 
Yeah, so you learned that lesson the hard way, but it turns out that it may have been a pretty fortuitous event, right? So you, know, you ended up at Menlo with former teammate Lucas Ersig and, as you mentioned, driveline lead hitting instructor Jason O'Chart. So I'm sure at the time it was stressful, but it seems like it may have played out pretty well for you. You know, you got a chance to play at three different college baseball levels. So you're in the Pac-12 at Cal, Cal State East Bay is D2, and then Menlo College, of course, is NAIA. You know, just talk about the differences between the three levels of college baseball that you played. You know, on the field, how was the baseball different, and how were how were the experiences different off the field? Um, you know, uh, all three of those levels are are quite different. Um, you know, my experience was a little unique. Um, I think playing for for Jake McKinley and Jason at at Menlo. You know, I got a really unique experience. Those are, those are the two of the most knowledgeable um, and most skilled coaches uh, I've ever, you know, had the pleasure of meeting and I got to play for them. Um, so it's hard to say, you know, you know, my vision of the NAIA is a little biased because I got to play for those two guys. As as far as skill level, you know, when you're playing Pac-12 baseball, almost everyone, you know, on the team can really play. Like there's no uh, serious weaknesses on, on either side. Like you have a lot of good players, um, and as you go down to you know D two or NAIA, um, I think you have you know about four or five you know really solid you know Division one caliber players on each team. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's just you know, there's just a slight drop off, so that's where the talent level kind of goes down. I think in the Pac twelve, like you know every every reliever coming out of the bullpen is gonna be throwing you know ninety two ninety five, and that's just something you don't see um, at the lower levels, right? How about that comparison between the D2 side that you saw and the NAIA? Is there anything that really stood out to you? Um, unfortunately, I didn't get to play a D2 season. Mm-hmm. I thought the talent, uh, again, our Menlo team was extremely talented. I thought we could have beaten a lot of Division One teams in the area. Um, mm-hmm. But I thought the talent uh, at D2 is very similar. And honestly, there might be a, a few more, you know, Division One professional type players at the D2 level than there are on most NAIA teams. Um, but still, like, NAIA baseball is, is still good baseball with plenty of professional um, talent on each side. Yeah, so I want to ask you to dig into that NAIA baseball a little bit deeper. What are some of the advantages that you saw about playing at the NAIA level? And then what were some of the drawbacks compared to the other levels you played at? Um, I, I think, again, like it, it depends on the school you go to and the, the you know, the values of that the coaches have and the academic side. I think NAIA is great because it's a lot of liberal arts colleges. Um, and you can really, you know, choose what you want to focus on and get a really personal education mm-hmm. uh, just because the schools are smaller. And uh, the baseball is, is different. Like it's not quite as, as intense as, uh, as division one baseball with crowds uh, in stadiums. Um, but the quality of baseball is still there, especially, um, you know, on Friday's first day um, with the pitching. Um, it's just that just that drop-off I mentioned earlier. Yeah. How about resources and training and, and practicing, and, and how does that shake out? Um, I, I, so I'm not super familiar with, with all the rules, um, but I think in NAIA you can have a, a bigger roster. So there's more of a development side to it, too. It's where, like, the coaches can add as many players as they want. You can have kind of a JV team and a varsity team, and that way you can get more games in, and there's more of a developmental side. 
especially if you're you know not quite physically ready right um, to play at that level so there's that advantage and the rules in NAIA are, are, are a little bit different just like some small details here and there so you've been through a lot on the college side a lot of change a lot of things that you probably weren't expecting you know knowing what you know now if you could go back and give you know, your best piece of advice to 14-year-old Max Dudo, you know, about the college recruiting process and the college search, what would you tell him? I think it's a little bit what I mentioned earlier about having a plan um, with everything. You know, I don't think I chose the right school for me developmentally as a baseball player. Um, And that, you know, the decision at the time wasn't necessarily a bad one just because I didn't exactly know what I was getting into. If I could recommend anything to younger players, it'd be to write everything down and know what you're good, know what you're bad at, know what your goals are, and be able to train with that goal in mind. And the same thing academically as well. I would you know, definitely take some time uh, to write down what you want to accomplish academically, what you're thinking uh, for life after baseball, just so you're not you know, playing catch-up once you graduate or once you get into college. Um, so basically just, I mean, having a plan with everything you do, um, you know, taking the time to make that plan and writing it down. Awesome. That's awesome advice. Let's, um, let's transition a little bit. Let's talk about what you're doing at driveline right now. How would you describe your role there and what goes on on a day-to-day basis? What are you doing every day? Um, so my, my role on the hitting side, uh, you know, it, it started uh, when I first got here, you know, about four or five months ago. Um, you know, I was in charge of working with KVEST and, you know, understanding everything I can understand about what KVEST has to offer. And, you know, with that, it's just a basically a mobile like biomechanics lab that gives you um, kinematic sequence data, like rotational velocities, et cetera. Um, but now my role has kind of uh, transitioned into, you know, one-on-one individual work. So at Driveline, we do a lot of group training like, where we hit off the machine and everyone has a program to follow. And what I do is have times uh, where guys can sign up and work with me one-on-one if we want to make some swing changes based on what the data says. Um, but mostly it's just creating a, a developmental plan for the player. And, um, you know, I explain to them what I think they need to work on. They talk to me on what they think they need to work on. And we sit down and we write it out. And I develop a plan for them and write their day plans um, on, a, on a day-to-day basis. So when they go to group work, the goal is to not take um, not take a rep without having a plan or something behind it. So really dialing in that intent and that focus so that each player knows what they need to do themselves to get better. Exactly. Exactly. A lot of it is like explaining to them, you know, how to use intent and how to make adjustments uh, accordingly. So like we try to stay away from guys like, oh, okay, I'm working on like, you know, turning into my back hip more in my stride or, or whatever. And we want to more focus on like, Hey, here's my external goal goal. Like I want to hit the ball 90 miles an hour over the infielder's heads. And then you can make, you know, that physical adjustment if you didn't accomplish that goal um, to do it next time. So making adjustments on the fly, which is really what hitting and taking at bats is. Right. And I should mention that you wrote a really nice article that summarizes your use of KVEST and kind of a, a starter for people who aren't familiar with that tech. And we'll make sure to put that in the podcast notes so that people can get a chance and read it and see 
exactly what you're talking about there with KVS and your work there. Um, awesome. You, Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Do you see yourself as a way to bridge that information, the data to the player that you're working with? Is, is that your, is that how you would summarize your role? Uh, yeah, I think that's exactly what I'm doing. So, I mean, uh, when I prepare for, you know, a session one-on-one, you know, I look at the batted ball data from, um, all their data points on hit tracks. Um, I look at the blast motion stuff um, and also uh, look at the KVS and the high speed video and try to pair up all those things to kind of see what's going on uh, with their swing. Um, so we kind of toe that line daily on you know, not overloading the hitter with too much information, um, but giving the hitter relevant information so they can use the feedback and make changes uh, uh, quickly rather than if they didn't have that feedback. Right. You know, and there's still a lot of data and tech doubters out there. I personally think that, you know, they're going to have little choice but to fall in line eventually. What would be your your argument to someone who does say, you know, I don't want to give all this data to the hitter because it's just going to mess with their mind while they're trying to be productive at the plate? Yeah, I mean, as most of most of us know with baseball now, like baseball has this culture of you know, not wanting to see numbers and not wanting to have the data. And uh, to be honest, we're, we're pretty poor at training hitters. So I, I think as things go on, like people are going to realize that it's going to be part of the game and hitters are going to start wanting that feedback um, as they train. And so you've actually seen this, you know, you're still playing. You played in the minors last year and you played some independent ball last year. So you started at driveline as a trainee, actually. Um, yeah, I started training last year after my uh, um, second year with the White Sox. Okay, and so you've you've seen that transition from trainee to now employee. What has changed over that year-long period just in terms of your implement, implementation of data as a player and also your perspective as a coach and using data? Yeah, to be honest, it's changed quite a bit. Um, I'm, uh, I'm actually pretty disappointed with how I use utilized the feedback last year and utilized, you know, all the resources at driveline. You know, I came in and just said like, Hey, I don't, I don't want to work on my swing. Like I just want to train at game speed. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it goes back to not really having a plan. It's like, okay, I'm just going to take it bad. So I'm going to hit off the machine and I'm going to get better. Um, and it didn't really work out that way because, you know, I never really, knew what I was bad at and I never like was able to deliberately practice uh, my weaknesses. And I think this year, you know, I'm working on uh, having more of a plan uh, with my training and knowing what my weaknesses are, knowing what my swing weaknesses are um, and trying to stabilize those and challenge them, um, you know, as I get better. Yeah. And that's a pretty cool perspective actually. Right. Because as coaches, a lot of times we just end up, regurgitating or using what we were taught throughout our playing career and passing that down to our players right but it sounds like you know you're using a lot of the stuff that you wish you would have done differently rather than what you learned coming up to actually impact the next generation of you know college and professional players yeah exactly I mean and there's there's always going to be that intuition part of baseball there's always going to be that baseball guy mindset that you have um, and which you definitely need. And like, that's part of the game, you know, playing experience is always going to be valued um, and knowing what it's like to step in that box and face 95 um, is, is a big advantage. Um, 
and again, it helps you train with that goal in mind. It's like, hey, I have to get in there and face, you know, 97 with cut. Like, how am I going to deal with that? Right. Right. So if you could kind of give yourself one objective, if you could go back in time and say, again, talk to 14-year-old Max about hitting development and hitting training, what one piece of information would you want him to know? Um, if I were to give one and I know I'm kind of harping on a lot, but it's, it's having a plan and really, uh, trying to know yourself and, um, having, you know, uh, overall development plan that highlights your weaknesses and like strengthens your strengths. Um, if I were to say one physical thing, it would just be to be physically strong by the time you enter college. Um, not only isn't it, is it an advantage on the field, but you get the respect of your coaches, um, and teammates as well. If you step in. Um, and you're able to dominate the weight room on day one. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's something that your former teammate and friend, John Sideropoulos, mentioned when we had him on the podcast. Um, he talked about the importance of being physical, having a physical presence and being ready to step in and, and handle that workload and handle the weight room. And that's a that's a really great point. I, I, yeah, absolutely. I think, it, I think it's, um, you know, it's more the price of entry than anything. And you get that respect. Uh, right away and let's like instead of you know playing catch up uh in the weight room compared to your other teammates yeah let's let's talk about that a little bit so um you know how are you how has how have you evolved in terms of your training outside of the batting cage as a baseball player how have you improved your workouts how have you improved uh, the way you're treating your body so that you can maintain that physicality and, and continue to grow and improve. Yeah, I, th- I mean that's that's a really good question. I think you know at the stage in my career now, uh, um, you know I was you know lucky enough to kind of develop physically you know when I was nineteen or twenty, um, and kind of got that strength and you know was able to you know play at a professional level because you know I was physically capable. And now, you know, in the later stages, it's more about kind of maintaining and um, uh, being really specific with my training. For example, like I have, you know, uh, disassociation issues. So it's hard for me to like move my hips without, um, you know, my shoulders moving as well. So I do that a lot in my training and the data um, tells me that. It's also, uh, you know, as a player, it really helps to have a coach on both sides. You need someone there who can interpret data for you, both on the weight room side and on the, you know, the hitting skill side. So it's it's an all encompassing approach where. And I know you guys obviously focus on this heavily at driveline where you're you're attacking the player from all aspects, whether it be, you know, their their training in the cage or with their throwing. Um, obviously in the weight room is a big priority and then also the recovery side and the nutrition side. Uh, exactly. And that's something that I think we look to improve upon every day is integrating all aspects uh, of our training staff. So, I mean, hitting with strength, strength with uh, physical therapy, um, all of those departments with R and D um, you know, we try to be really good at integration and um, improve upon that each day. Cause it's only going to help the athlete if we're all on the same page and like the athlete and all the departments are working towards the same goal. Yeah. And this may be a difficult question for you to answer, but how, if, if I'm a high school baseball player and I don't have all the resources that a driveline baseball has, and I, maybe I don't have access or I can't afford some of the tech, which hasn't quite 
you know, come down in cost. Yeah. How can I, how can I start to incorporate data? How can I start to incorporate tech at an affordable rate? Are there any hacks that I can use to, to still have this approach without some of the fancy tools that are necessary? Uh, there, there absolutely are. And like, you know, I don't have an easy, you know, fix to that problem. I don't have, you know, a one-stop shop for that. Right. Um, I think number one, you know, especially on the strength side is read. Like, uh, there's a lot of material and a lot of research on the strength and conditioning side, much more than there is on movement or skill work. Um, so there's a ton of resources for you on how to get strong. I would recommend Starting Strength uh, by Mark Ripito. That's one of our favorites around here. Um, and I think for any high schooler, that should be a staple resource for them. Um, and when it comes to hitting hitting tech, um, I think Blast Motion sells uh, their sensors for, uh, you know, a hundred bucks. So be able to save up and, and get one of those. I would highly recommend it. Um, and there's plenty of resources out there that, you know, explain what the metrics are and how to use them. Um, and then just, I mean, with, you know, batted ball stuff, yeah, I would try to hit on the field as much as possible and hit the ball as hard and far as you can. Um, ball flight always gives you the best feedback and it never really lies to you. So I really pay attention to ball flight. Um, and if you're catching the ball flush or not. So top spin, back spin, side spin, uh, be really conscientious of that. There's feedback on every swing, right? And if you pay close enough attention, you're going to be able to make adjustments from swing to swing so that you can better replicate the, the results and, and what you want to accomplish. Exactly. Yeah, I'm a big believer that, that, that the ball doesn't really lie to you once it comes off the bat. Yeah, and just for our listeners, I mean, I remember – we would have long practices at Cal and then, you know, I would be walking back to the office after practice is over and you'd be out on the field with the tee, uh, just hitting buckets and buckets of balls. And I'm sure, you know, watching the ball flight and seeing, seeing what was happening was exactly what you're doing, which is awesome. You've always been a cage rat and someone who works tirelessly at improving your craft. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about, constraint-led approaches to hitting training. Can you kind of talk a little bit about what that means and how you would recommend that players implement it into their training? Yeah, absolutely. So um, using constraints, it's more uh, of like a hands-off method. And like the skill as a coach is being able to design uh, a learning environment um, for your player. So, I mean, uh, using weighted bats as a constraint um, say like hitting with no stride is a constraint, like trying to clean up some upper body actions. Um, uh, you know, there's time constraints. There's like, uh, say like you take a round or you're trying to just, just pull the ball. That could be a constraint. And, uh, you know, it's up to the coach, um, and it's their creativity and skill to kind of design that environment, um, that either, um, you know, that's trying to attack the, uh, the player's weakness. Um, so one of the constraints, you know, I like to use when working one-on-one, um, and I stole this um, from Dustin Lind. Um, it's like, you know, lining up five balls across the plate, and if the ball, if the pitch ball doesn't go over that ball, like, you don't swing. Um, that's just a, a, a small example of, of a certain constraint. And that way, the coach, it's not just you um, talking at the hitter and them trying to make adjustments from your words. Um, you know, they have a task to accomplish and they have to problem solve to, uh, to make it happen. Yeah. And so basically if we can really peel back what a constraint led approach means is you're, you're giving the hitter 
a problem to solve by manipulating some part of the training process or giving them something, a specific task that they need to accomplish. Exactly. That, yeah, that was a long winded answer for saying just that. Yeah. And so, (laughs) so you're really in a sense, forcing the player to feel some of the changes that are occurring in their swings and some of these movements so that they can better adjust on their own without having a hitting coach or, you know, whether it's a, a hitting or a pitching coach back there saying, you know, get your elbow up, get, do this, do that. Exactly. Um, some of the things that, you know, make a more mechanical player rather than allowing their athleticism and their kinesthetic awareness, their feeling of their body to make these adjustments for them. Uh, absolutely. I think the mark, um, you know, of a great coach is someone who talks very little and is expertly designs environment, uh, you know, to help the athlete um, accomplish the goals they're trying to accomplish. Um, and especially when using certain constraints for developing movement patterns, uh, like you, you want to use those constraints so they can learn and you want to take them away, you know, as soon as they feel the movement um, and try to challenge them after that. Yeah. So let's roll with this movement. Um, I want to talk about the on base U course that you recently attended. So you, you tweeted after you went to that course and one of the highlights of the conference was breaking down of motor learning and how to get the most out of a one-on-one session, you know, with a hitter. So can you talk about your takeaways there and what you learned at that conference and in that training that someone listening at home might be able to apply to their game? Uh, absolutely. I think, I think first off TPI, um, Greg Rose and the, and the whole on base you thing is, is a tremendous resource for, for baseball players and coaches. Um, they've done a great job of like providing content, um, not only articles, but videos of exercises that are going to help with certain problems or swing characteristics. And they just do a, a tremendous job. So I would recommend TPI as a resource to anybody. Um, and at the, co- the conference, you know, uh, we were lucky enough to listen to, to Greg Rose talk about motor learning um, and how he works with with golfers one on one. And he explained kind of just what I said uh, earlier and, you know, how to use a constraint, and how to get the athlete to feel something um, and then how to get them to learn it as effectively as possible. I think the biggest takeaways are, um, you know, block versus random practice and, you know, every research paper and skill acquisition is going to point towards random practice being a more effective tool for learning. Um, not to say that block, that there isn't value for block practice and stabilizing, you know, movement patterns. So block practice is where you're going to, you know, implement a constraint, get the athlete to feel what they feel to make the movement happen. And after that, you use random practice to challenge the movement. And that's where learning really occurs. Explain that random practice a little bit more so that someone who's out there listening might be able to replicate it. What do you mean exactly by random practice? Yeah, so uh, in, in a baseball sense, like block versus random practice, you know, block would just be taking flips over and over again or BP over and over again. And, you know, research and skill acquisition has shown that that is not the optimal way to learn at all. Um, and random practice would be, you know, hitting off a machine that throws cutters and sliders and you don't know what's coming or hitting off a coach who's really good at mixing up pitches um or you know taking at bats in the game that's all random practice and i think the key with random practice is to be able to um 
you know, have a plan with it and practice deliberately while the, while the task is still challenging and you don't know what's coming. This is great stuff, Max. I think, um, you know, what I love about what you're saying is you keep coming back to themes, right? So you coming back to the idea of having a plan, having an approach, you know, intent behind what you're doing. And I think that's a message that a lot of players really need to hear. You know, and the other thing that you keep talking about is you keep referencing different resources, right? And so the information nowadays is out there. Um, obviously, you have to have a good filter and you have to understand what type of information you can use. But, you know, for us, we, we target a player, let's say, who has no money to spend on the recruiting process and no money to spend on their development. Um, the, res- the resources are out there, you know, with Twitter, with the Internet, for players to find information on exactly what you're talking about so that they can implement that without having to spend a lot of money. So I, I love some of these themes that you're continually hitting on. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. And you're, you're doing a great job uh, for young hitters. And uh, hopefully we can continue to spread the word to, to use keep playing, keep playing Baseball as a resource and get guys uh, to the colleges that are best for them. Yeah, I appreciate that. Now, I know you have a ton going on, so I don't want to keep you much longer. I do want to ask you one last question that kind of piggybacks on my last tangent there. Um, so... I want you to address the high school players that are sitting at home listening to this, you know, given everything that you've learned up to your career. And we've talked a lot about that throughout the podcast, give them one thing that they should be doing from a developmental standpoint to improve their chances of playing at the college level. What, what should be their focus? Um, You know, I'll, I'll stick with the theme there. I think number one is having a plan Um, and, and, you know, have a step-by-step plan for your development process. And I think for most high school guys, I think this is the real answer to that question, that you're going to need to have the physical tools to be able to perform at the level you want to perform at. Um, There's no guys who dominate college baseball and are weak. There's no guys who dominate uh, professional baseball or at the major league level um, who have strength deficiencies. Um, You know, they're strong guys and they're physically capable. Um, You know, as much as people on Twitter are going to want to tell you, like, hey, uh, you know, just put the ball in play or, you know, keep the ball on the ground or just hit your spots. Um, you know, guys at the higher levels uh, hit the ball over 100 miles an hour and they hit homers and they throw 95 mile an hour fastballs. And that's just the reality of it. And I think that's something uh, the high school guys and, uh, you know, younger players really have to understand. Um, if they're serious about this goal, um, that's going to take a lot of work and a lot of planning and, and development. Yeah. And luckily, we've learned, you know, through the work of places like Driveline that a lot of these skills are something that you can develop. You know, it's not necessarily that you're a natural 95 mile per hour arm. These are things that you can work towards. You know, you might not be a kid who can hit the ball 100 miles per hour right now, but this is these are skills that you can continue to develop and improve and reach that point at some point. Exactly. And uh What's what's crazy about baseball is having that goal to hit a ball over 100 miles an hour, something that's very new. Um, and just having that goal alone, being able to train um, with the end in mind um, is going to help that process quite a bit. Outstanding stuff. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head, right? There's a standard that you have to reach if you want to play at a certain level. And your goal as a player needs to be to hit that standard 
from a physical standpoint, from a skill standpoint, academics, and so on and so forth. So really outstanding stuff, Max. Um, obviously, it's it's great for me to have you on um, as someone that's worked with you and seen you develop into a professional player. It's really awesome. Love the work that you guys are doing at Driveline um, and excited to see what you guys come up with next. No, thanks a lot, Ethan. It was uh, it was great being on and hopefully you can uh, continue to spread the word on development and continue to spread the word on, on keep playing baseball. Um, just keep, keep up the great work. Appreciate it, Max. Thanks for your time. We'll uh, We'll talk soon. Thanks for tuning in to the College Baseball Recruiting 101 podcast brought to you by Keep Playing Baseball. As always, if you have questions or need more information on the recruiting process or player development, you can find that for free on our website, www.keepplayingbaseball.org. We're also very active on social media. You can find us on Twitter, at KeepPlayingBB, Facebook, KeepPlayingBaseball, and Instagram, at KeepPlayingBaseball. If you've found this podcast to be helpful, please take the time to leave us a review and give us five stars. That'll help other people find our podcast and get access to great free information. We'll be back at it with a new episode soon, but until then, take care.